This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America on this U.S. politics edition of the program. Is it time for the District of Columbia to become the 51st state of the Union? Hello again. I'm Carol Castiel. Many people around the world are not aware that the approximately 700,000 citizens living in Washington, D.C., including yours truly, the nation's capital, do not have full representation in the U.S. Congress. According to Neera Tandon, president of the Center for American Progress, that's a liberal policy group in Washington, quote, the city has more residents than two other states, those states are Vermont and Wyoming, and its citizens pay federal taxes, yet they have no say in how these tax dollars are spent. Washington, D.C. citizens sacrifice their lives in war, but the district has no vote in whether to go to war, unquote. Harking back to colonial days under the British, the slogan, taxation without representation, has become a familiar rallying cry for those who favor statehood for the District of Columbia. In recent days, the House of Representatives, in which the Democrats hold a slim majority, approved legislation that would make Washington, D.C. the 51st state. But according to the Wall Street Journal, the bill faces an uphill battle in the Senate due to Republican opposition and hesitation from some centrist Democrats. The journal says that the bill was cast as a civil rights priority, saying the city's residents deserve full self-rule and representation in Congress. Critics have labeled it a power grab by Democrats to gain two more senators. Currently, Washington, D.C., or D.C., as residents refer to the Capitol in an affectionate way, has a non-voting delegate, Eleanor Holmes Norton, who has long advocated for statehood. The bill, H.R. 51, the Washington, D.C. Admission Act, was passed on a party-line vote of 216 to 208. The Biden administration supports statehood for Washington, but the bill faces daunting odds in the Senate, where current rules require 60 votes for passage. Conventional wisdom has it that because the U.S. Constitution provided for a federal district under the exclusive jurisdiction of the U.S. Congress, the district is therefore not a part of any U.S. state. But advocates are persevering nonetheless. The Wall Street Journal says that were the bill to become law, most of Washington, D.C. would take the name State of Washington Douglas Commonwealth in honor of Frederick Douglass, a national leader of the abolitionist or anti-slavery movement in the 19th century. Well, for more on the pros and cons of D.C. statehood, we turn to two analysts who have opposing views on the issue. William Roberts is the Managing Director for Democracy and Government Reform at the Center for American Progress, or CAP. Prior to joining CAP, William served as Legislative Director and Chief Counsel for Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland and Zach Smith, he is a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation, and that's a conservative think tank here in Washington. And both gentlemen join me via Microsoft Teams. William Roberts, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. And Zach Smith, welcome to you. Thank you so much for having me. Zach Smith, as I was reading my own introduction, I realized there was a, a bit of a bias. So I'm going to give you the first question because I know that you are 
opposed to D.C. statehood. Let me just preface for our listeners that this was once considered a rather fringe cause pushed by locals here in D.C., of which, as I said, I'm a resident. But interestingly, the vast majority of Democratic lawmakers are now on the record in support of statehood for the nation's capital. But let me turn to you because there are certainly very interesting and legitimate reasons against statehood. So, Zach, go for it. Why not, for all the reasons we talked about and more, I'm sure we'll learn about, why shouldn't D.C. become the 51st state? I appreciate you having me on the show today. Thank you for having me. So I think before we can even get to the discussion of whether the District of Columbia should be a state, we have to talk about whether it can become a state in the manner that's currently being proposed. Right now, it's being proposed to make the District of Columbia our nation's 51st state by simple legislation, just a bill passed through Congress. Based on my reading of the Constitution, which is something that both Democratic and Republican administrations have agreed on in the past, a constitutional amendment would be required in order for the District of Columbia to become a state. The District of Columbia is unique. The Founding Fathers intended for it to be an independent entity separate from any state. And in order for that status to change, a constitutional amendment would be needed. Let me turn to uh, William Roberts. William, how do you respond to that? Because I know you're in favor of D.C. statehood. Is simple legislation really enough? Wouldn't a constitutional amendment be warranted, as Zach said? So uh, thanks again for having me and good to be with you, Zach. So no surprise, I, I disagree. I think that it's pretty clear that Congress does have the power on its own to admit states to the union by simple legislation, as has been done before. Certainly the district, as it currently stands, not only holds a special place in our hearts as Americans, but constitutionally holds a special place. But that does not mean that it needs a constitutional amendment to be admitted. And uh, we can get into the intricacies of H.R. 51 and the legislation and what some of the concerns are around necessary language changes that could be done by amendment or could be done by other statute with regard to electors for president in our electoral college. and But at the core issue of the question of whether or not Congress has power to admit states to the union, the Constitution is pretty clear about some of the baseline requirements for how you can do that and how you can't do that. And it certainly can do it for D.C. statehood, in my view. Go ahead, Zach Smith. Well, if I could just jump in, I know, Will, you've made this argument before, and many on the Democratic side of the debate have made this argument as well, that this simple legislative process has been used 37 other times in our nation's history to admit new states. Every state other than the original 13 colonies have been admitted by this process, which I say fair enough, but constitutionally speaking, so what? The District of Columbia is unique. None of those other 37 states owed their very existence to a separate constitutional provision like the District of Columbia does. So I think Will is correct that, you know, 37 other states have used this process, but no other state has or has had the unique status that the District of Columbia does. Will, let me get you to respond before we get into other ideological and political arguments. Sure. So just briefly, I would say I think that one of the solutions to the issue in between Zach and I here are found in H.R. 51, actually, where the creation of the state of Washington Douglas Commonwealth does not wipe the federal district constitutionally raised off the map, it shrinks it. And we can talk about that. I know there's some concerns there that Zach and I have discussed before. But if the main concern is that the Constitution does lift up 
the district as the seat of federal power, H.R. 51 not only creates the 51st state, but also redefines where the federal district would remain. I believe that uh, what would happen, as far as I understand the legislation, that it honors the Constitution's requirement that the seat of government would be in a federal district controlled by Congress, not exceeding 10 square miles, then the rest of the current district would become the 51st state. But let's get into some other issues. So back to you, Zach Smith. Are there some ideological questions? For example, many Republicans have indicated that they believe that this is really just a power grab. Everybody knows that the District of Columbia is predominantly Democratic. The district votes almost always for Democrats as president, and their representative who's non-voting is a Democrat. And that's just a power grab. Is that a factor in your thinking? Well, I think certainly in terms of practical considerations, those are certainly aspects to be taken into consideration, but it doesn't affect the constitutional issues that are raised. And so, again, if we focus just on the constitutional issues that are raised by the district becoming a state in this manner by simple legislation, whether the new senators would be Democratic or Republican or some other party is really irrelevant. Certainly on a practical level, many of those who oppose D.C. statehood in this manner, it's been said they oppose it for political reasons. And again, you know, I think the same could be said for those who favor uh, D.C. statehood in this manner. It's certainly easier to pass legislation in Congress than to get a constitutional amendment passed. And so I think that may be one of the reasons we're seeing such a push to accomplish this goal right now in this way, rather than going through the constitutional amendment process. So back to you, William Roberts. Do you buy that argument by Zach that, no, it's really all about the constitutionality? There may be politics, but it's the constitutional argument that's supreme here. I believe that Zach's a good guy, so I'll take his word for it, that that's what Zach believes as a scholar that he is. But I have to also believe what I've heard many, in fact, Republican senators say, not just in this Congress and the last, when H.R. 51 was certainly picking up steam, but over the years. Their base argument is that if Washington, D.C. is granted statehood, they believe that it's a play for an additional Democrat in the House and two in the Senate. And that is the main reason that they oppose it. I have not heard lots of Republican senators, not to be terribly partisan here, but the split is pretty partisan, at least in the Senate. I haven't heard many Republican senators be as eloquent as Zach about the constitutional merits of their opposition. They tend to follow Mitch McConnell's lead and talk about how they don't want a new state admitted with two Democratic senators. We'll have more in just a moment. But first, you're listening to Encounter on the Voice of America. Our guests are William Roberts. He is Managing Director for Democracy and Government Reform at the Center for American Progress. That's a liberal think tank here in Washington. And Zach Smith, he's a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Conservative Heritage Foundation, also based in Washington. And we're discussing the arguments for and against statehood for the District of Columbia. And this is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. Well, here's a shout out to a very loyal Encounter listener, Timothy Arazu from Anambra State in Southeast Nigeria. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. 
Well, back to our discussion about the pros and cons of the District of Columbia becoming the 51st state in the union. Back to you, Zach Smith. I want to get beyond, you know, the constitutional argument. Let's say that legislation is legitimate and that if there was enough support, which doesn't look like there is right now, particularly in the Senate, to pass H.R. 51, which would make the District of Columbia the 51st state. Let's take a look at that. Some people are saying, even some Democrats, for example, I believe a Democratic Senator Mark Kelly from the state of Arizona, who has said, look, why don't we do something called retrocession? And that would mean that the state of Maryland would absorb Washington, D.C. residents, that they could vote with Maryland. How do you see that alternative? Well, it's certainly one of the alternatives being discussed. You could also potentially treat the citizens of the District of Columbia as though they were citizens of Maryland for purposes of voting. But again, anytime you're talking about altering the status or the size of the District of Columbia, it's likely a constitutional amendment would be needed to do so. And again, this isn't or historically has not been a controversial opinion. And you have you know liberal luminaries like Robert F. Kennedy saying that. You have the Carter administration, Justice Department saying that. And so historically, there has been bipartisan consensus that to alter the status of the district, you would need to amend the Constitution. William Roberts, Zach, is sticking to his constitutional arguments. But let me ask you, William Roberts, talk about some of the other factors that you think are responsible for us reaching this moment, that there is such a groundswell, not only from residents in the District of Columbia. And of course, full disclosure, I am one of them. And I do feel, to be honest with you, disenfranchised. I'm originally from Pennsylvania, and I often wish that I could vote in Pennsylvania or somewhere, knowing that my vote would certainly count in terms of legislation and that I have a representative to write to, a senator. So that's just personal. And But there are other factors. Talk about whether it's race, whether it's the way the district has been treated. Why now? Sure. I think you hit it there. Certainly, there's a reason that this notion and movement for statehood has gone from one that has been regional and just sort of located right here in, in the district with folks who live here and, and folks in the surrounding area to a national movement. And it is largely because the themes expressed, as you mentioned at the top, in the fight for D.C. statehood are really the themes expressed through the fight for citizenship at the beginning of the nation. And then the notion that there shouldn't be taxation without representation, that's been the mantra in D.C. for nearly 200 years, not just in the revolutionary period, but now as it relates to statehood. You know, I know we're talking to an international audience, yet D.C. is the only national capital, federal capital in the democratic world where the residents don't have full citizenship rights. This is something that sort of anybody, whether you're in any city in America or any city around the world, can understand why people would want to be fully vested and included citizens in the democracy. And as you said, there are strands, not just of heavy handedness from the federal government to its oversight of the district. Certainly, we can talk about the fact that the district is sort of under the thumb of the federal government. People might not understand what that means. Congress has the power to supersede D.C.'s laws in various respects, and it's done so over the years, whether it's on marijuana legalization or marriage equality, HIV and AIDS prevention, other budgetary matters. The district is sort of normally the playground, if you will, of some federal legislators who like to condition funding for D.C. on 
them not spending or, in fact, spending money in certain ways, even if the residents of the district don't want it spent that way. And you see the sort of disparity in the way that the district has been treated sometimes with regard to federal funding, be it for money to fight the coronavirus and the like. But I will say on this racial justice piece, I don't think it's a coincidence that certainly in the past couple of years as the nation and really the world have been dealing with how to talk about race and justice and how that's interwoven and how our societies have been built. I don't think it's a coincidence that folks are focusing on the district. I mean, the district's population is extremely diverse, but, you know, it was for a long time known as Chocolate City um, because it had a very deep population of African-Americans, even going back to the post-Civil War era. And if you look at the interesting history of the different governing types that the district has had over that time, you see, particularly after the Civil War and through even the early 60s and 70s, some of the times where political power was taken from the district coincide with the times where black political power was on the rise. And I do not cast this as an aspersion against anyone who is opposed to D.C. statehood. But if you look at some of the comments made, particularly by folks in Congress like Senator Tom Cotton and others in these D.C. statehood debates over the past couple of years, they have said very plainly, Senator Cotton said, well, D.C. shouldn't be a state because it's not a well-rounded working class state like a state that has miners and loggers, etc., completely discounting the contributions of the really diverse population here. And so I think all of that go into the mix with why D.C. statehood has become so very popular at this time. William Roberts, don't forget, D.C. doesn't also have any landfills or sufficient number of car dealerships. Right. <laughs> of course, th- this was mentioned by several GOP House members. So well, let me go back know, to you. Yes, Zach. Yeah, if I can jump in, I, a couple of responses to Will's comments. You know, as a practical matter, I think we do have to recognize that if the district were to become a state, it would be unique in many ways. It'd be our nation's only city state. It'd be 17 times smaller than our next smallest state. And it would lack many of the amenities and resources that nearly every other state has. Now, of course, legally speaking, those standing alone don't present any impediments to the district becoming a state. But there's certainly factors that I think we have to acknowledge and frankly discuss. Now, in terms of whether opposition to D.C. statehood is based on racial animus or racism, I would have to dispute that. The status of the district has been controversial from the beginning. It was a decision that the framers of the Constitution made not to have it be part of any state. And even some of the district's own elected leaders, like Mayor Walter E. Washington, the district's first elected home rule mayor, for practical reasons, when he was testifying in front of Congress, said that he would oppose statehood at that time. You know, there's a quote from one of the Justice Department's reports under the Reagan administration when they were looking at this issue. They said, quote, statehood for the District of Columbia is not a racial issue. It is not a civil rights issue. It's a constitutional issue that goes to the very foundation of our federal union. So I know that I keep coming back to this constitutional point, but I really don't think we can separate that from the discussion we're having today and that really it has to be at the forefront of our discussion. So, Zach, on that point, hypothetically, if we could overcome this constitutional hurdle, let's say we can get an amendment passed, would you then be in favor or not 
of D.C. becoming a state? Well, I think we would still have to discuss those practical issues that I mentioned earlier, that there are other ways for district residents to achieve voting representation. And so, you know, those all certainly deserve full and fair, thorough discussions. But before we can have those, you know, I think we do have to have that constitutional discussion. Let me just say one thing, too. According to reports, Maryland does not want D.C. residents absorbed into the state. And I think D.C. residents have voted against that. So that idea doesn't seem to go anywhere. Go ahead, uh, William Roberts. Sorry, Carol, if I may, just because I really appreciated Jack sharing that. And there's a couple of things because I forgot to go back to retrocession. So as you mentioned, the residents of the District of Columbia overwhelmingly have passed referendum in support of statehood. The majority of the Maryland state legislature, including certainly the majority of Maryland's federal representatives, are not in favor of retrocession. They're in favor of D.C. statehood and H.R. 51. Just two quick points, if I could. I don't want to dismiss, you know, Zach's constitutional arguments, and I do think they're part of the conversation. And certainly I'd respect, you know, that this was not what the framers envisioned. I am so glad, though, that in that document that the framers created the Constitution, there (laughs) were ways both by amendment and by other purposes, not just through constitutional amendment, to change what they envisioned. We know certainly that folks like me weren't envisioned to be full citizens at the time of that constitution. And so I think that we've got to understand that America can change and that's okay. But also to this point, you cited the DOJ report, I believe, also fundamental to those constitutional issues is race. We cannot unpack the history of our founding documents or the story of our country, both the beautiful and the ugly, frankly, from race. And in statehood debates of the past, we know certainly that race has been a factor in statehood admissions of previous states. We can go back to the record of things said on the House and Senate floor way back when, but just in the admission of, you know, states like Hawaii and Alaska, we can look at the congressional record to see pretty clearly that race was a factor. And so I don't think we can discount that as being a factor behind some of the opposition now. So back to you, Zach Smith, on that particular point. If the District of Columbia was predominantly Caucasian, if it was predominantly white, very, very affluent and so forth. Do you think we'd be having the same debate? I don't think it changes the constitutional analysis at all. And look, you know, I think to Will's point, over time, the Constitution has changed. And the way that it's happened is through the Article 5 amendment process. So whenever there were injustices that were obviously not supportable, we passed amendments to fix those problems. And so, again, that would be the appropriate mechanism here. So back to you, William Roberts. I have a feeling you probably don't buy Zach's arguments that it's above all a constitutional issue. I believe what I hear you saying is that certainly race is a factor and politics, that this would be a democratic state, definitely lean democratic, gaining two senators and another member of Congress. And it is predominantly African-American. But right now, whether that is valid or not, there are interesting, legitimate arguments on both sides. But the fact is, is it doesn't look like even enough Democratic senators are behind this. So the political hurdles right now, particularly in the Senate, notwithstanding the bill passed in the House of Representatives, it looks like a very, very daunting uphill battle, don't you think? 
Well, I think a lot of things are daunting in a 50-50 Senate, but I do trust the ability of Democratic leadership to be able to count their own votes and to be able to keep having this conversation in their caucus. I do think that you've seen members of the Senate evolve on these types of issues. And at the end of the day, this is one of what is core and fundamental to being an American and having a full say in your government. And so I trust that as conversations are going on in the Senate that folks will be able to see a path forward on this. And, you know, again, I, I think that there are many avenues besides just the constitutional amendment avenue to get this done. And I assume that you probably think that those who advocate for statehood, this is about as far as those who advocate for statehood have come to date to getting statehood on the agenda and potentially passed. But you do have what we call the uh, 60 vote rule. That is, you need 60 senators right now. You don't even have all 50 on board. So once again, a challenge, but you have made quite a bit of progress, one would say. As you opened up the program saying that this used to be an issue that a very small segment of the population even had on their radar. And so I think that longtime advocates of statehood, both in the district and surrounding, should be really proud about the way they've been able to open up the struggle to people and give people a view into what the fight for statehood is about. All right, gentlemen, on that note, I'm afraid that's all the time we have. I'd like now to thank my guest, Zach Smith. He's legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation and William Roberts, Managing Director for Democracy and Government Reform at the Center for American Progress. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America. Thank you.